Go to everydaynovelist.com slash support to join the madness. <laughs> Welcome to the Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, author of nearly 30 books, more than 30 short stories, and numerous articles and scripts and essays, coming to you from up in the crow's nest with my spyglass on this daily voyage through the dicey waters of business, craft, learning, and art in the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 1011. Simon has kindly sent us the makings of a series. So starting today and for the next four days, there will be a series on dealing with and writing unreliable narrators. Simon's first question is... First, I'm going to introduce uh, the series. Oh, okay, yeah. Simon introduces the series thusly. I found myself in the very lucky position of having time to dictate a lot of words each day while walking our dogs for an hour, but that's led to me getting ahead of transcription, self-editing, and even planned out novels. I found a solution. The unreliable narrator. In my case, an old woman in a nursing home telling fairy tall tales oh, about, her, about her time abroad a starship. Abroad no, a starship? Abroad aboard. That makes a lot more sense. It would either be her time as a broad on a starship, or her Which time aboard a starship. Yeah, tales about her time aboard a starship. No planning required, and if two stories contradict each other, blame the narrator. <laughs> nice. So, my questions. Are there any rules or conventions when using an unreliable narrator? I'm writing in first person already, which feels like it would be recommended, if not outright required. Not outright required. You can actually get away with an unreliable third-person narrator, and it's really fun when you can when you pull it off. But yes, uh, first-person, it's a little easier to sell. There's not really any rules. There's a lot of style considerations, like how unreliable do you want your narrator to be, and how much do you want your audience to be in on the joke. I mean, one of the ultimate unreliable narrator stories is The Usual Suspects, so mm -hmm. the film. The entire film is narrated by a con who's been given immunity, and it's never clear what the truth is. Not from the beginning. And he changes his story up several times along the way, and it's loads and loads of fun. Um... But unreliable narrators are all over the place, and depending on depending on how much of a cynic you are, or how much you study human perception, you can uh, approach everyone as an unreliable narrator. I generally do as an author. A great um, example, another great example of this in written fiction is I can never remember the guy's name, but there's a. Uh, book called The Instance at the Finger Post, which is a historical mystery, which is told as four, four short novels that are put together in a bound, uh, in a single bound novel, and it is only by reading all four that you get all the clues to put together what really happened. Mm. And I can't, I mean, it's been 15, no, it's been 20, 20, almost 25 years since I read it, so I can't remember if you actually get cliff notes at the end. But um, 
the fun of it is that you're piecing it together from these four disparate perspectives of exactly the same event, and they're so different that it seems like it can't be the same event, yet it is. That's a really good one to study. Um, who are some other great unreliable narrators, and what, what things have you noticed about unreliable narration that would be useful for someone um, who is plunging into that world? Another good film version of an unreliable narrator, at least for the ending, is the Clue movie. Oh, There's yeah. three or four different versions of the ending, and they present in the video version that you can get now. It, was uh, apparently they did different endings in the theater. In different theaters, yeah. But on home video, you get all of the endings, and how they do it is, is this might be what happened, or it could have gone this way. And then finally, but this is what really happened. And what's really fun is that no single one of those endings actually fits all the facts, but it took me about 15 or 20 viewings of watching very specifically to figure out that none of them completely fits, mm. which makes it extra amount of fun. It's one of the reasons it's so rewatchable. Mm-hmm. And, and even though you only get the unreliable part in that, that ending with the multiple versions of the ending, mm -hmm. all of them have enough plausibility mm -hmm. to sell as they are. And that, that I think, works. Mm -hmm. I think the thing with an unreliable narrator is that it has to at least appear coherent to the perspective of the person telling the story, even if it is not completely accurate. Knowing the motives of the person telling the story actually helps you shape the unreliable narrative. And two really good examples of this. And they're wonderfully done because reading them a second time gives you a different experience. Because the second time, you've got a much better idea of what the narrator's motives are. Are The Murder of Roger Ackroyd by Agatha Christie. It's one of the Poirot novels. And it was one of the Poirot novels that was narrated in the first person by someone involved in the case. And... Also, Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov, Ooh, which is yeah. a spectacular example of an unreliable narrator because there's about three different layers to the story because Humbert has three different motives for telling the story. He wants to tell the truth, he wants to acquit himself, and he wants to tell the romance as he would prefer to remember it. And he does all three at once. And so you can read that book three times and get three completely different experiences, depending on which of those three lens you're looking through. Mm -hmm. And it makes rereading it a startling and disturbing experience, much more disturbing than the first read-through was. Mm -hmm. So what, um, what other things have you noticed that unreliable narrators do when they're doing it well? Now, um, the... Example that Simon is picking is kind of a different type of right. Of, he's doing the tall tale because it's the tall tale, and because it's it's a person who's elderly and possibly has dementia or other memory loss. So their stories are going to be unreliable. Is going to be different than say someone who is trying to excuse themselves excuse for a crime. themselves for, for from a crime um, or someone who just doesn't remember, or things like that. Yeah, you're, you're talking about a fabulist. It's someone, 
the 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 old guy on the porch in the yeah. rocking chair. Yeah. Um. Oh. Uh. Of course. Uh. Of course. I'm in the process of studying this book for writing Secrets of the Heinlein Epic. Heinlein's Time Enough for Love is yes. entirely this kind of thing. It's an unreliable thousand-year-old narrator who's bullshitting his descendants in order to get them to let him kill himself. And in the process, he is discovering his own motives for telling the tales, which is fascinating and loads of fun. Um, oh, uh, God, yeah. The American tall tales genre is 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 the there's not a lot of frame stories in. I suppose the uh, the Uncle Remus stories are like mm. this. The Uncle Remus stories are really interesting because they're uh, they're black slave folklore that's been collected and given a frame story by a white abolitionist who nevertheless had, as the abolitionists did, a very condescending attitude towards the former slaves. And so the frame story about Uncle Remus is kind of patronizing and really uncomfortable to read with modern eyes, but at the time it was like super respectful compared to what was available. But the folk tales themselves are amazing and delightful and wonderful. And if you know anything about African mythology and folklore, you can see sort of the roots that go back to Africa and the stuff that was borrowed from the white trash settlers from Scotland and and the mixing that happened. It's fantastic. Great stories. And they are one of the root traditions of the American tall tale. And tall tales are a distinctly American form of folklore. Hmm. Um We've got, uh, there's the classics, there's uh, the tales of Paul Bunyan and Pecos Bill, um, some of the wilder tales about cowboys, mm-hmm. The you know, it's a sort of magical realism meets the Wild West is what the American tall tale um, winds up being most of the time, where it meets the, not just the Wild West, but the Wild East, the Wild Northeast, mm-hmm. but... Um, Oh, God, I love tall tales. It's been a long time since I sat down and read a bunch of them. But you're going to have loads of fun with this. It sounds like you already are. Um, And uh, you are on to something as far as it not mattering to the audience. Um, H.P. Lovecraft figured out that he couldn't afford to make the Cthulhu mythos consistent because no mythos in history is consistent. So he figured if he wanted to give his mythos longevity, what he needed to do was work a lot of contradictory stories into it so that the continuity problems would make them stickier in the mind. Hmm. It was a very, very sharp call, because we're still reading Lovecraft a century later. So uh, that's part one of Unreliable Narrators. Tune in tomorrow for part two, and until then, we'll see ya. The Everyday Novelist is written by J. Daniel Sawyer and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty McKeon and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2021 J. Daniel Sawyer and the production is copyright 2021 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License and all other rights are reserved to their respective owners. 
Join the conversation. Submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat. Or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you.